Brett Midler, Einstein, and Mordecai Richler, Abby Alana, and their pal Wolf Blitzer. That guy my booby once met on a cruise. These are a few of my favorite Jews. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode six of A Few of My Favorite Jews. It is Laura Lebo here on the ones and twos, recording live from my daddy's office. Um, my father is no is not currently occupying his office because um, he is working from home as our most. And so I'm here. I'm here taking it over. Um, there is some kind of room sound, uh, something, a fan, I, I don't know, it's coming from the bathroom, it's a hissing, uh, could be a bathroom snake, could be, uh, could be a toilet ghost, uh, bathroom snake or toilet ghost, my two guesses, write in, tell me what yours are, would love to hear from you guys. Um, but I'm really hoping you guys can't hear it. And if you can, I don't know what to tell you. Um, it is COVID. Our options are limited. I am doing my best to make a podcast that sounds relatively put together, but to be quite frank with you, audience, I don't know how well it's going. I only have so many options for recording. Um, I can't often record in my current home because um, it's not tiny, but it's small and creaky and the noise travels and my roommates, um, their voice carries and they're on calls all the time for work. It just doesn't make sense um, for me to record there. It's also currently sweltering hot in there um, because I don't, one of my roommates I think doesn't feel uh, doesn't feel temperature i'm not sure i'm not quite sure uh oh the hissing stopped bye bye toilet ghost have a nice afterlife um anyway i don't know i guess she's um uh doesn't feel heat who's to say who is to say i got home last night it was 76 degrees in the house hard to know why hard to know why a person would sit in that and f- and either f- not feel it at all or feel it and go, mm-hmm, yes, comfort at last. 76 degrees, I am at home. You know, it's hard to know, but I am not here to judge, you know. I'm not here to judge anyone's, uh, you know, basically insane ability to be a frog in boiling water. That's not for me to judge. Um and the ghost is back. He has returned. I shouldn't have said anything about him. Because he was he had actually completed whatever mission he needed to complete um to rest his soul in peace and then he heard me yammering on about him and now he's back. Uh now he's back for vengeance. Speaking of toilet ghosts, I was talking to my dad recently. And I remembered, I've, I've, I've had this memory for a while, but he reminded me, he reminded me to remember um, that for context, my sister and I were not permitted to watch a lot of content growing up. Like, uh, we were allowed to watch TV. My parents tried to put a cap on the amount, but like kind of gave up when we were maybe like 10. Um, so we were allowed to watch TV, but they restricted the content. Like, they did not want us to watch R-rated movies. Um, they didn't want us to watch scary movies. And we I remember we watched Scary Movie. 
um, both an R-rated film and a frightening film. It's a comedy, but if you're a little baby like me and my sister, it's scary. And we watched it at our cousin's. We would go to our cousin's house who lived around the corner, and their parents were like a little more lax, partly because um, they just were, but also because they had my two cousins were like our age mine and my sister's age and then my aunt had um twins who were eight years younger so like they were just busy they were just busy which was great we could watch stuff and um anyways so my sister and I had not had not seen a a scary movie ever and I don't know that we wanted to like I don't think it was something where we were begging our parents to watch a scary movie the way we would like beg them to get a dog um and then one day we were on, a, I think we were in Vermont. We were, perhaps we were skiing. I don't remember. But my sister and I were, uh, we had our own separate room from our parents. So we could like be wild and crazy in the hotel. And we, we put on a movie and it honestly just looked like a fun family flick about, you know, a family and their TV, you know, um, man's best friend, television. Um, the family's really like fixated upon this TV. There's like a cute kid. I don't know. I thought it was a movie about babies and television. Um, and then wow, did it take a turn? Um, it just was the poltergeist. It was the poltergeist. It was the film, the poltergeist. And my sister and I, like just the evolution of going from watching a movie that we thought was about like babies and TV to just a full horror flick, which we we had never seen before, um, still stays with me. It's in my bones. I I do not like scary movies. There was a brief amount of time where you could you could pull me along to watch a scary movie, and like I'd be into it at the time. It's fun, you know. But then afterwards, um, I would feel sick and I couldn't sleep alone. It was just like, like, anyways, I think that's why you should show your children horrifying films from a young age because you don't want them stumbling upon the poltergeist at age, you know, 10, much to their horror, you know. So I'm just saying scare them a lot as children, you know, maybe, you know, um, make make peekaboo a little more interesting, you know, maybe you have like some fake blood in your teeth or some kind of, you know, horrible wound painted on your face for peekaboo. Um, you know, as sometimes you, you hide and you like pop up in front of their high chair. Um, maybe, you know, you pop up, you disappear, you bring a stranger into your house and that stranger pops up, right? Because the kid doesn't really understand where you've gone. So it will think you've just been replaced by like some next mom, you know? Um, keep it interesting, keep it scary, keep it spooky for the kids. That's, that's all I'm saying. Um, anyways, I'm moving on June 1st. I'm really excited about it because I'm moving in with my little tiny sister, um, who I call my tiny sister because I used to babysit this little girl, uh, for a long time. And then, um, I don't know, my sister ended up babysitting her later on and I don't know who she said it to, but she would refer to my my sister Amanda, who is my younger sister, as my tiny sister, which we really liked, because um, she's pretty tiny. She's a pretty she's a pretty tiny sister. So I'm super excited to live with her. We've lived together before. I mean, in our youth, um, and in adulthood, a couple of times have overlapped at our mom's, but you know, it's just a bit different actually living with a roommate sister in adulthood. Um, so we're really excited about it. 
I have a feeling things are going to get pretty wild, pretty quiet, really, is what they're going to get. We're both introverts and homebodies and um, don't have a lot of interest in meeting new people. So could be a pretty wild, quiet time for us. Um, And what's really exciting is I have her on the podcast today. She's my guest. My tiny sister is my guest. Um, I'm not going to lie. I just think I need to acknowledge this. When I get excited, when, when I have a guest on and I'm, I'm going through all my notes and I'm all excited, my voice gets significantly um, more Jewish American princessy. okay? I don't know why. I don't know what to do. I am working on it, but I haven't quite fixed it. Um, so if that's not something you're comfortable with, I don't know what to tell you. You're listening to a Jewish podcast by a Jewish woman who's 30. Um, you have to sort of, you have to expect some vocal fry. If you're not ready for that, then you're just like in the wrong place. Um, and if you are ready for that, you're welcome. Um, all right, that's enough of me. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie. And I'm Gabe. And we're the Menchwarmers. Every two weeks, we'll be sending thoughts from our brains right into your ear holes about the world of Jews and sports. Join us if you want to hear about who hit more home runs this year, Jock Peterson or Alex Bregman. Or maybe some interviews with staff and athletes from Team Israel on their way to the Tokyo Olympics. Or, sadly, if you want to hear us break down the latest anti-Semitism scandal in professional sports. Which one, Jamie? Well, unfortunately, there are plenty of those. Find us wherever you get your podcasts or at the CJN.ca. Welcome to episode five of A Few of My Favorite Jews. I'm here with my tiny sister, Amanda, uh, and we're here to talk about Miss Amy. I don't know if she has a middle name, but Jade, you can... Jade Winehouse. Um, Amanda knows everyone's middle names. Uh, it was a question she used to ask people a lot when we were children. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's your go-to gal if you need a middle name. Um, Actually, it, you should already have a middle name. Because I'm oh, so you asking don't, you or what it is. Okay, so you won't be assigning any middle names. I can, but that's not, like, mainly what I do. What would you call my middle name if you didn't already know it? I'm seeing you on the subway. Are you wearing that thing in your hair? Yeah. Okay. Um, I feel like I'd be, like, her first name is Jessie, so her middle name is, like, Kara. I don't know. Jesse Kara. I knew that whatever you came up with was going to be basically calling me a basic bitch. Well, no, you're not a basic bitch, but like, you're a basic sweetheart. <laughs> you're a basic sweet. You're a basic I love the cutie. Name, I like the name Jesse. Yeah, it's fine. It's uh, cute. It's a cute name. Jesse. Yeah, but what was the middle name? I think I didn't like that. I forget now what you said. Kara. Kara. Honestly, I'm, you're putting me on the spot. I can't think. If you cannot pressure. handle the, the heat, get out of the kitchen. We're live here. You better okay. handle the pressure. Okay. Um, what about Juniper Harlequin? Now we're closer. There we go. Um, so we're both dressed up as Amy Winehouse. Miss Amanda did a slightly better job than I did. Um, <laughs> she got the mole. It, so it wasn't a mole. It was like a Monroe piercing. You dumb idiot. But then I've seen photos of her with a mole. Or maybe it's just a scar. It's probably just a scar. 
from her okay. Monroe piercing. Is that what she called it? A Monroe piercing? Or is that what it is? I think that's called? just like what it's called. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so we're here to talk about Amy Winehouse, Amy Jade Winehouse, uh, beautiful, dear singer who belongs in both of our hearts, I would say. Mm-hmm. Why did you choose Amy as your favorite Jew? Because she's my favorite Jew. That's a really good answer. Like, not even, <laughs> truly, like, I'm not being facetious. I don't think a lot of people f- picked their favorite Jews. Like, they picked people that they liked that were Jewish. But I think you really picked your fate. I was going, I, well, it's funny. I was going to pick Andy Kaufman, who I thought would be a really interesting Jew to talk about, who I hey, had well. a huge phase uh, with and was really obsessed with. And then I realized, oh, and then as I do, I just put on an Amy Winehouse song that like I do it every day. And that's how much I love her. And I was like, who are my favorite Jews? And lo and behold, Amy Winehouse and a woman. Which... And then you know the thing they do in, in um, shows where they're solving a mystery where you're like, you put on Amy Winehouse and you're like, wait a minute, Amy Winehouse, Winehouse. House. House. House of the House Rising of the Sun. Rising sun. Sunday. Sunday. Daytime. Daytime. Wine time. Wine Winehouse. Winehouse. Amy, Amy Winehouse. Winehouse. And it's like we could have started. And that was just how I figured out that I was listening to Amy Winehouse. <laughs> <laughs> and then once you were there, you were like, wait a minute. <laughs> Music. Amanda. Um, anyways. Um, that's a very good choice. You, when did you get into Amy? Like, when did you get into her music? Posthumously, right? It was posthumously. Posthumously. (laughs) Or as I one time heard someone pronounce it posthumously. (laughs) (laughs) And oh, and then I laughed at them and they were like, (laughs) sometimes I mispronounce words. I was like, honestly, sometimes so do I. Anyways, um, so I got into her in university. My friend from university was obsessed with her and she was like, Caroline Mm, and she showed me I loved the music that Caroline liked and she showed me like a bunch of Amy Winehouse songs when Amy Winehouse died I was devastated did not even know one of her songs did not know she was a good singer because she was portrayed in the media as being like a horrible addict trash person as so you so you were so you were but you say you were devastated when she died yeah i was just really sad oh because you're sad about death because you're just a person who cares yeah i think like i don't know what i think it's because i told someone i told our father and he was like no amy she was so talented Um, and i was like she was so talented like not that it would have been but yeah so my actually two friends from university who loved her but my friend Caroline and I would be obsessed with like singing songs in um what's the photo booth? We'd record ourselves in photo booth and find like really obscure Amy Winehouse songs and like sing them into the microphone. And we sounded so funny and I hilarious. I'd love to find those if you could. Um okay, so we're gonna quickly just like chat about her life, okay? Okay, let's do it. All right, Amy Jade Winehouse was born to Jewish parents. Um, Her father was a window panelist for a while, and then he was a cab driver. He was sort of like, I think he was always doing different things, and he was not often home. His name was Mitch. Um, Her mother was a pharmacist named Janice, and she was born in 1983 in North London. North London. North London. So she was a, a London Jew. Yeah. 
Other, Lo- other London. <laughs> I got emotional when you said London Jew. <laughs> no, we went to like, happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, she lived with her parents and her older brother, Alex, in the Southgate area of London, where she also attended the Osage Primary School and Jewish Sunday School. She was never overtly religious and only attended synagogue once per year on Yom Kippur out of respect. So, same as, we know what kind of Jew she was. The Jew we are. The Jew we are. Uh, I I don't even go once a year anymore. No, I have not been to synagogue in ages and ages. And I'm I'm, like, actually, it's been so long. I'm almost curious what it's like. Has it changed? (laughs) I don't think it's it's changed. Well, it's probably very different now with COVID. But I don't think it's like, and I don't think it's like adapted to the future. Like, I don't think it's like young or sexy or like futuristic. I think it's exactly, I think it's one of the few things that is preserved in time as being boring and religious <laughs> and full of, of the elderly and the jew the, yeah the Jews. okay we can check it out yeah maybe like after covid the first thing i'm gonna want to do is go into a synagogue just to make sure nothing is new <laughs> just to make sure nothing is new if anything is new i'll be really rattled but we would love it if we would go to synagogue again one day well we will and just mm-hmm. so you know it's not like we're not going to synagogue at all I mean, we still go every every week that you're supposed to go. Yeah, whether right it, whether it's Friday, Saturday, or Sunday or is anyone's guess. <laughs> but one of those <laughs> days is important, and we go. Yeah, or Wednesday, Wild Card Wednesday. I love going to school on Wild Card Wednesday. <laughs> it's so fun. They play bingo. Yes, and you can celebrate any Jewish holiday you want. Your choice. Yeah. Dealer's choice. Card, yeah. Card. Um, she grew up surrounded by music, especially jazz, with many of her uncles being jazz music being jazz musicians on her mother's side of the family, and her father's mother being a singer who once dated the jazz saxophonist Ronnie Scott. So her mother so her father's mother, Cynthia, she was very close to. Yeah, you know, tell me. Well, I think she had a tattoo of her. She was really, really close to her. And when she, when Cynthia died, I think she called her Nan. But she I, did. I did. She did. Yeah, um, Nan. She was really, really devastated, and I'm pretty sure this was also when she was like in the throes of her addiction. Yeah. So it was just like not a great combo. Yeah, things were already pretty bad for her, and then her Nan died, um, and yeah, she got a tattoo. And her mother was like, her nana would not have liked that. It's, I wonder how many young Jews have tattoos in honor of people who would absolutely hate that. Hate it. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, no, her, her grandmother, Cynthia, she was very, very close with. She was like one of her biggest supporters, but also was kind of critical of her. And I think she also sort of lived vicariously through her because she also wanted to be a musician and like had almost made a go of it at one point. Like she had a, a, a jazz band. Um, and just, just because she, maybe because of the time, she was a mother, she just couldn't pursue it fully. Um, and I think she sort of lived a little bit through her Grendel. They probably were also able to bond over their love of jazz. And I think she was like really obsessed with her father, Amy Winehouse, and he left the family early, Mm -hmm. left for a different family. And I feel like that was maybe a way of connecting to him. Um, but also he, speaking of living vicariously, he 
he wanted to be a jazz musician. He loved jazz. And so he like really, he, I mean, he like really screwed her over and was not a good person to her, but yeah, he would like, uh, just like exploit her to, to try and be famous himself. Well, you know, there's a story of, uh, Nick, uh, Shemansky and I forget who else was there. So Nick Shemansky was like her first, manager although i don't think he was actually a manager he worked for the management company because he was also very young Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. so he worked for 19 records i believe that's the name of it let me check before yeah 19 management um and they were really close and i think he and a few other people kind of in the middle of her career right before things got like really horrible and she was hounded by paparazzi they couldn't handle it anymore yeah they kidnapped her basically and like brought her, tried to bring her to uh, a rehab clinic and they brought, yeah, they brought Mitch into the mix and this is what the song rehab is about. And Mitch was like, I don't think she needs to go to rehab. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, she's fine. Nick Shemansky was really, he had her best interest in mind and he really cared about her. And you can see that in the documentary too. At a certain point, he actually like just, can't he cuts ties with her because it's too hard for him and he's tried Mm -hmm. everything he can but at one point yeah it's like one of her producers i don't know and a few other people and her dad was kind of like yeah not kind of like he was like yeah you don't need to go to rehab and she went in she went like she had like a consultation i think and i think she sings it better in the song because like like as we know it's like they tried to make me go to rehab and i said no 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 and then it was about how her dad said she was fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the people at the clinic, some might even call them therapists, <laughs> um, said to her, like, you're depressed. And then there's a line in the song where she's like, they just think I'm depressed. Yes. Yeah. Me, baby. And the rest. Like, mm-hmm. I interpret that like, yeah, we're all depressed or like, I don't know. But, but she didn't like being co- told she was depressed. And so she bailed. She bailed. She bailed. She Her mom, I feel like, was just more. I think her mom was really not knowledgeable about mental health stuff, and and so what came off as a like sort of, um, maybe like turning the other cheek or turning a blind eye. Turning a blind eye was actually just like maybe part of that that it was upsetting for her to see her kid like that, but also like I really. It seems like she didn't know a lot of things. Like, there's a scene in the movie where she's like, you know, like, I, I'm not, I don't know if this is exactly how she says it, but something like she reflects on how Amy Winehouse used to, like, binge and then throw up. And then she says, like, you know, I think that might have been bulimia. It, like, she's sort of, and and if you've seen her in interviews, there is something very, like, a bit spacey about her like she just she just seems like very very like spacey and like someone who would end up with someone who really takes charge yeah I think she's a little bit submissive yeah that's the vibe I got from her is uh she's kind of just a bit like unaware she's a bit like it's just like what 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 this is like the most random memory but at White Pond, at camp, at summer camp, we had some evening program, and, like, I don't even remember how this came to be, 
but the instructions of the evening program were totally misinterpreted and everybody thought they had to send a representative from their cabin up to pretend to take a shit while driving. And so everyone went up and was like pretending to drive and taking different kinds of shits. So like, yeah. like if someone was constipated, they'd be like pressing on the gas. And then if someone had diarrhea, they were like swerving all over the road. And then at the end, whoever was leaving it was like, okay, that was not the assignment. Like, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> was how. that even like close to what it was? Yeah. So there was supposed to be like an act out and it was supposed to be about like, pooping was like one of the subjects, but it wasn't the whole thing. I think it was more supposed to be like activities you do at camp or something, including like pooping on canoe trips. I don't know. But they were like, I don't even know how this happened, but you all did it and it wasn't what we asked of you at all. That's um, really funny. Anyhow. Wait, really quickly, I did a like you had to do like an evening program activity for your section and so my friend and I did a scavenger hunt but we missed a really key ingredient which was like you send them back to the original place at the end so you can all like meet up and just and like see who won but we forgot to send them back to the original spot so they were just like all over the camp and people were like where is everyone is it done and we were like oh yeah it's over it was like everyone was so confused. <laughs> like, we're just gonna need to quickly drive the lake. No big deal. But like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. in 1992, encouraged by her grandmother, the year I was born, the year Amanda was born, and it says that's how that's everyone knows. 1992. In 1992, the year Amanda was born, encouraged by her grandmother, Amy attended the Susie Earnshaw Theta School where not only did she develop her vocal capabilities, but she also learned to tap dance, which I don't feel like she did. Like, I, I feel like she skipped to... tap class. A hundred percent. I have no confidence in that fact. There's no way Amy Winehouse tap dance. Absolutely. And if she did, good for her. But she's, I, I watched her perform with Mick Jagger uh, recently. Have you seen that video where no. they sing Ain't Too Proud to Beg? She's pretty far along in her disease. She's not doing well, but she wanted to go perform with him so that, like, she explicitly said to her mom to out Jagger Mick Jagger. So she's... To what? Out Jagger Mick Jagger. Oh, okay. And so she is trying to do, like, the Jagger swag. Yeah. But she looks insane. She's sort of doing this, like, weird tiptoe. And I'm like... She had really weird dance movements, which really I loved. Weird. But in that context, yeah. it's weird. Oh, but also, like, she's, her dancing is weird. It's amazing, but it's not, like, I'm the kind of dance you learn at school. <laughs> <laughs> like, if that was what she was taught. They don't teach Jagger dancing at school. They don't teach tiny tiptoes at um, dance no. school. Okay. Um, so she went there. She started a rock group called Sweet and Sour. With her oh, friend. yeah, with her best friend, Juliet Ashby. Juliet Ashby. Juliet Ashby. What was I going to say about Juliet before? Oh, we were talking about her generosity, Amy's generosity. So when she and Juliet moved into their first flat, yeah. um, she paid for the whole thing because <laughs> she, had, she had gotten her first big check for, I don't think, at that time it was just a publishing deal and not a record deal, but okay. she paid for the whole thing. Um, oh, wow. That is very generous. Juliet lived there rent free. Um, Juliet's the one, if you've ever seen the documentary, like anyone who might be listening to this, you've seen it, but, um, you, Laura, yeah, but, um, Juliet's the friend who's, like, really invested in Amy's well-being and, like, yeah. really cares about us, really devastated. About that got me more than anything. That, mm -hmm. her, her friend, Juliet and Lauren, 
Yeah. That got me more than anything. I, yeah. I think like, because in a way at that age, your friends do know you're better than your parents. Yeah. They probably felt like the, they had the closest proximity to her and the best chance of stopping her. Yeah. The you know? saddest, the saddest part of that documentary is when, so I, I think it's the Grammys and Amy Winehouse won a Grammy. Yeah. I know what you're going to say. Yeah, like Tony Bennett had announced it. It was like via satellite. It was like via uh, she wasn't in the room, and so she was videoed in. And they're like, there's a video of the room where she's waiting to hear whether or not she won. And she's so excited because she loved Tony Bennett, and she just like couldn't believe he announced he was announcing the winner. And and then he says her name, and she's like freaking out and she's so excited and like she's crying and her parents and her family go on stage and she's hugging them and then uh I think at that point she was trying to be sober and her friend Juliet um like came on stage and gave her a hug and I think she said something to her like I'm so bored this this is so boring I I like I I don't know if she said I want drugs but the implication she said this is so boring without drugs okay yeah but here's the thing I remember when we saw that in theaters so me you, Amanda, mm-hmm. and our dad. Yeah. So I would point at him, but he's not here. Not here. But um, <laughs> he's uh, alive. Just to be. Funny. He's alive. He's yeah. just up. He's just in heaven. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's, he's in just, heaven because he's like playing tennis and he's so happy or something. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, we went to go see the Amy documentary in theaters, and we all sobbed. We all sat yeah. in the theater holding hands at the end crying while everyone else left. <laughs> I don't know if we held hands, but a hundred percent. I held dad's hand. I don't know if you did. Uh, I, I don't think I would have done that. I held a hand. <laughs> I held someone's hand. I don't know <laughs> who's, but I was it being, I was being touched and I was touching someone else. <laughs> Whatever. It was good. You I needed it. Look into that. <laughs> I, need, I needed it in that moment. And then I remember that you brought that up that resonated with you, that scene where she said she was bored. And it really stuck with me too, because I was really early in recovery. I was also still drinking. And I, that really resonated with me because I was like, yeah, that's the depressing thing, isn't it? Like no matter how much recovery time you get, no matter how, how good things get in sobriety, life is boring. Yeah. And I'm here to say, um, that's what it's like in early recovery. Mm -hmm. It gets Mm -hmm. easier. It's also what it's like in recovery in your 20s, where, like, you expect life to be thrilling and boredom's the worst thing you could possibly experience. It's true. And also, she wasn't, like, her environment and her job were not conducive to getting sober in any way. Like, Oh, absolutely. There's no way, even if she was in beginning to, in, in the initial stages of sobriety, like, that it just, she would have needed to be in long-term rehab. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also Tony Bennett says this in the documentary. He says, um, life teaches you how to live it if you live for long enough. And Mm, I'm like, yeah, history is wise. He had expressed a lot of regret afterwards for like, at least publicly, he said like, I wish I had told her to slow down. She could have been so great. But it's also like, I mean, they didn't have any previous closeness or relationship it's kind of hard to say to someone out of thin air that you don't really know like get sober okay 
Probably actually because she idolized him so much, maybe it would have resonated, but probably she was looking for a father figure because her dad wasn't the best. The no, best one. No, yeah. So he went to another family. Is that right? I think I missed that part of the book. <laughs> or maybe the he mom was... just didn't want to talk about it. As I uh, understand, he was cheating. Yes. Yes. He was unfaithful. He was unfaithful. I don't know if he had a whole other family. He was unfaithful. Is that the term we use these days? Um, and he, I thought, like, I, I know that I feel like he's still with the woman that he cheated with. Okay. Um, I don't know if there were kids involved, though. Like, I know he didn't have any more kids. I don't, I'm pretty okay. sure. Okay. I don't know if she had had kids. But he was, uh, at that point, like, he was pretty in and out of her life. And this is where I wanted to rec- um, talk about oh. a, a Judaism aspect, because this mm. is about Judaism, and yes. also relate it to one of her songs. But, um, so basically, she sings a song about her dad, mm-hmm. and it's like, can I play it? Or like, yeah, sure. Okay, I'm just gonna... DJ Amanda on the ones and twos. Taking a piss and then a poo. Um, okay, so this is... We'll, we'll just, like, give it a listen, and then I'm just sort of gonna, like, deconstruct it, if okay. you will, but... Okay. okay. Understand, once he was a family man, so surely I would never, ever go through it firsthand. Okay, so... What she said was, understand, once he was a family man, so Uh surely I would never ever go through it firsthand. Yes. My interpretation of that is that she was involved, she had cheated and been cheating on, and she's sort of reflecting on that, but it starts by reflecting on her own upbringing with her Uh father. He was a family man, and so obviously, like, her saying that I would never go through this firsthand, I think is, is, like, her kind of saying, like, my dad was a family guy. He loved his family guy. Like, we didn't have any problems in, in our family. Like, I would have yeah, never yeah. experienced cheating firsthand. Right, 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 right. Is how I interpret it. But then we do know she, I mean, she wrote about this a lot in Back to Black, but that she was cheated on. And actually, I don't know if, she, no, she cheated on someone else. She's been cheated on and she cheated on Okay, so else. then the next part is mm-hmm. this. Can I play it? Yeah, go ahead. Emulate. The ship my mother had. I can help but demonstrate my Freudian So, like, dur, like, emulate all the shit my mother had. I can't help but demonstrate my Freudian fate. And I feel like this is not exclusive to Jews, but I feel like Jews are just very, we're very vocal about our feelings and opinions and yeah. uh, Freudian issues. And I yeah. just felt like that was such a perfect, like, summary of how she felt about the situation and such a, a good reflection of that like yeah I, I I really like the term Freudian fate um yeah because it is sad it is sad how inescapable it is to replicate what our parents did to us and to each other yeah and it takes just so much time more time than any one person has yeah to, undo that before you are cemented in that role like it takes so much goddamn therapy to be able to potentially undo turning into your parents 
Um, yeah, she cheated on her first boyfriend. I mean, that's what the song Love is Blind is. Is that what it's called? Basically, she's saying, yeah. she, she's not really saying this, but she's sort of implying that it's not cheating because she cheated with someone who looks exactly like her boyfriend. Yeah, I know. It's so funny. It's really funny. She's really funny, man. There's a, a few really funny things in the documentary. The, funny, the thing that makes me laugh the hardest is when she finds out she's, she's, so, so for the record, so she was nominated. Oh my God, I forgot about this. So that she was nominated is... for the Grammys, but she, in order to get her, her art, artist visa to go to the United States, she had to pass a drug test, which she tried very hard to do, but failed ultimately. And so she couldn't go to the U.S. So they, they brought her to the Grammys through satellite. So she was in London, which was cool because she had her whole family come yeah. to see her get five Grammys that night. Mm-hmm. And they are recording her. This part's not like being fed live to the Grammys, but they're, they're recording her watching the nominees and they're, they're reading each nominate, nominee and their album name. And she's up against some heavy hitters. These are this year's nominees for record of the year. And then they read, oh, I love this. and they're like, and Justin Timberlake. What goes around comes around. Justin Timberlake. Or what goes around comes around, and you just hear her face, and she's like, Is that what's called what goes around comes around? Like, it's so funny. So funny. Like, it's hard to do the story justice just telling it, but like the video is so funny because here she is, like about to win a Grammy up against yeah. these like huge artists, and she just like stops to take a second to like tell everyone how I don't know it wasn't for anyone else's benefit like yeah, she, she just had to express out loud how ridiculous the that album, album name title is. Yeah. what comes around goes around and it was Justin Timberlake who was big at the time and she was just like that's a stupid name for an album <laughs> her, her mom was like I don't know if she never got PR training or if she just didn't listen she's just like a little chaos monster which is a she she could be very childish very childish. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to read some quotes from her mom's book right now. This seems like a good time for it. Okay. Okay. Cut out this part where you can hear me flipping. Cut this part, Laura. Future Laura. Future Laura? <laughs> yeah, future Laura loves sounds. Um, okay. My mommy sent this to me. My mom's a. My mom's a. So don't be mad at me, cause you're pushing 30, and your tricks aren't no more. No. <laughs> okay, right from the, should I do a British accent? Let's see how it goes. Right from the very beginning, when she was a toddler, no. Right from the very beginning. <laughs> it sounds like um, Renee's, that movie Renee Zellweger's in, The Princess. Chicago. The Princess Diary. The one that's like. Mr. Darcy. Bridget Jones. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mr. Darcy's not from Bridget Jones' diary. It's from, no, Pride, it's from Pride, Pride and Prejudice. Prejudice but oh, I mean, you're like, just being British. You're just being generally British. I, I, I am more familiar with the Bridget Jones' diary, like, movie than the... Right. There's, okay. like, an over... The like, blah, 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 British, whatever. Okay. Right from the very beginning, when she was a toddler, she was loud and boisterous. A toddler. A toddler. A toddler. Right from the very beginning, when she was a toddler, she was loud and boisterous. 
And scared and sensitive, she was a bundle of emotions, at times adorable and at times unbearable. Okay. Yeah, that was like her whole vibe as an adult, like knew how to be really charming and charismatic and get people to like her, but then could also be really rude and yeah, like sort of aggressive and immature and just sort of like bratty maybe yeah in fact with you saying that like she knew how to uh, be charismatic but then also push people away i want to read you this very brief story about her at a bar mitzvah <laughs> hold on so this is a memory of like a friend her uh janice her mother's friend's son's bar mitzvah okay so the boys were huddling up like a bunch of boys there were huddling up in a tight group dancing together arm in arm mm-hmm. and amy kept trying to muscle in on their fun Mm-hmm. And she just ended up making a complete nuisance of herself. A complete nuisance of herself. Getting there. And the other children seemed to develop a pack mentality around Amy, probably because it was the easiest way to force her back. Unable to command the attention she wanted, she stormed out of the hall and smashed her boot through the outer glass doors of the venue. Brian told me afterwards how he had watched Amy lift her head several times and scan the room to see who was watching, and when she realized no one was taking any notice, she'd bury her head into Jan's chest again and sob even louder. Whoa. I know. That's, that's interesting. I know. That is really sad and also explains so much, especially because her whole thing as an adult was like, She's like, I just want to be a singer. I don't want any attention. Like, I don't want to be famous. But I mean, I, she did. Yeah. Yeah. Hold on. I want to find the other. There's like a, a trailer for her, for her movie. And I remember I was so excited to see the movie. I played the trailer over and over again. And there was, um, there's a line where she's like, I don't think I'm going to be at all famous. I, really I, I watched the movie again last night and I thought of you because I remember yours. I don't think I'm going to be at all famous. I don't think I'm going to be at all famous. Um, her mom says she was, oops, she was naturally provocative because it attracted attention. But once she'd got that attention, she couldn't control what happens next. And she shied away from it. Oh, my God. That's so accurate. If you see her in interviews or just the trajectory of her life, that is so accurate. I relate to that really hard. Yeah. I relate to that really hard, especially like when I was a kid, um, uh, more of a teenager, actually. I, I wanted attention so badly. Mm-hmm. I didn't, and I had no idea how to get it. So I would just do whatever I thought would get me any kind of attention. I couldn't categorize good versus bad attention. And I did anything I could to get any attention. But then once you have that attention, there's a person on the other end of that attention. Yeah. A human person. <laughs> you don't account for yeah you don't really realize that like when you're so young and you just are, are desperate for attention and don't know how to love yourself and the only way you can get love is through getting other people's atten- well, you attention you want attention at a distance you want the you want attention, attention but you don't want to have to actually deal with it once it's there you that's want, right you just want I, the praise but you don't want to have to interact with that attention that's right and the attention feels like it exists in a vacuum, severed from any other human. It feels like it exists only for you. Like that's what it, that's what attention that's what that's the kind of attention you want as a kid is like I want this attention that will then bolster my sense of self. So it's all about me. Yeah. There's people there. There's people yeah, there. That's yeah. who's giving you the attention. Now, yeah. what, now, what do you do with this person? And I did. I I made all kinds of mistakes in my youth with that exact 
sort of mantra in mind, like get attention at all costs and then have no idea what to do with it. I feel like a lot of stuff, a lot of it stemmed from like wanting to get attention from her dad too, because he was absent and she would, she would sort of throw tantrums as a kid. There's like videos of it. And, um, and I think there's clips of it in the movie, but I don't know. This is just a guess. I won't try and psychoanalyze her life or pretend I know anything really personal about how she was feeling. But uh, I do feel like it's a part of it was like just trying to get her dad's attention as is probably like anyone who's trying to get attention is just, it just stems from like trying to get attention from the people who you always wanted attention from, which is of course your parents. And you have to live long enough to figure that out and stop trying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to try and get us sort of on a narrative track here. So, so she signs with um, 19 Records, 19 Management. She makes Frank, which she ends up really resenting because she didn't like the way it was mixed. Like, she didn't like the way it was produced. I thought that was just the case on one song. Um, it was on one song, but because she's a perfectionist and kind of in, uh, unstable, the whole album she just was, like, resentful of the way it oh, turned out. okay. Um, so she makes Frank, then she starts dating Blake pretty Mm -hmm. soon after that. Um, Blake is, I'm not quite sure what his job was. Um, he was a musician too. That's how they met. Okay. Um, and Frank, oh no, no, I'm sorry. I'm wrong. Frank. Yeah, no, she did meet him after Frank and then back to black was made after they broke up temporarily. Yeah. So she meets. Frank was mostly about her, this this the guy she was boyfriend. dating before, like her first boyfriend. Who seemed yeah. nice. Who seemed, he was a lot older than her. Was he was like four years older than her. Oh. Oh, that's not bad. You know? And he was just softer and like gentler, which yeah. she didn't like. She wanted somebody mm-hmm. who was like manly, which is obviously a bullshit definition of man. Wait. Yeah. Um, so in this time, she meets uh, Mark Ronson. Um, who she thought was just going to be like an old Jew <laughs> um, and turned out to be a young man. Mm-hmm. And they make Back to Black, I think, like in a, in a night. Like, uh, like, like they made it really quickly because he was able to, he, he was one of the few people that could actually guide her without her feeling like she was being intruded upon or her boundaries are being pushed. Yeah. Um, and he knew how to like get things out of her and he tapped into this breakup she had with Blake. Back to Black was actually... Or sorry, um, it they met because they had both not because, but they were both cheating on their partners when they got together. Yeah. They were, so I think like back to black was sort of about that. I don't know. No, I think back to black was about going to a dark place. Never. It was about that. it was about their whole relationship. So like yeah. there were different songs about. I'm different sorry, elements. I meant specifically the song back to black. Uh, like when she says, right. "I go back to black," but I think that was more about the breakup part. It I is because know. I think she alludes to him going back to his yeah, girlfriend. Yeah, he goes like his back safe to her. place. Yeah, yeah. Or his, that same old safe bet. I think he's referring yeah, to his yeah. ex girlfriend. Yeah, she's referring to his ex girlfriend. Okay, so and then she goes back to black. Don't you go back to black? Um. Jack Black, <laughs> finally. Jack Black. <laughs> she finally goes back to Jack Black. Um, okay, so at this point, she's quite famous at all. Uh, not at all. Not at all. So I think this, okay, I'm going back a bit here, but I just think it's cool. She was like kind of an industry secret for a while because she was underage and people like wanted her for their albums and stuff, um, yeah. which I think is how she was originally found by Nick Shemansky is like, one of the two Nicks heard her on someone else's song. Who's and the it, other Nick? 
someone else from 19 management. Um, journalist. Whatever, it's not important. Then I James. thought you thought that Mark Ronson was named Nick. No, there's another Nick. And then there's Tyler James, who she went to um, school with and who was the one who introduced her to Simon Fuller from uh, 19 management. So she had a lot of, like, men in her life. She had a lot of, like, men who who uh, helped her with her career who really seemed to care about her as a person. She was, like, mm-hmm. really... She had a few good people in her life who seemed genuinely concerned about her her entire life. Um, Salam Remy was one of them, right? Does so Salam is a really important figure in all of this. Salam mm-hmm. was her producer. He produced a few things of hers before she had a record deal. He produced a few things of hers while she was still just had a publishing deal. And then when she moved over to um, Island, which was where she had got her record deal, she already knew Salam, and Salam produced, I think, like almost all of her stuff. He. Yeah. He had produced uh, Most Def's stuff. She was a huge fan of Most Def, and the two oh, of them yeah, yeah. became friends, like really close friends. Yeah. So, so long oh, was Most like Def was the one that he kind of had a crush on her, he says. In the, yeah. I'll remember, I remember exactly what he says so because cute. it was so sweet. He said, he, man, I, he's so hot, and like, I just think he's really, I, I have a big crush on him, and he seemed like he would have been a good, consistent presence in her life. But he said, um, I had a big crush on her. Um, she was what is she, uh, she was quick with a blue joke. She had a big laugh. She could drink anybody under the table, and mm. she was just a kind lady. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's sad that drinking under the table was one of those things, but you know, yeah. at the time, she could. Um, oh, I see. It's it's double sided. <laughs> That's why I can't find this. Okay, Nick Gatfield. Um, the island had Nick Gatfield headed up uh island records okay okay i see so so whatever point being salam is a very important figure in in all of this he finger? was finger in all of this yeah i call him more of like a thumb um <laughs> he stayed friends with her for her whole life he was just uh he was like one of the main figures in her life that stuck around and kept trying to get her help and he produced all of her stuff he produced back to black um yeah. her manager ended up being her promoter. She, she asked her promoter to be her manager. Um, I don't know how the music industry works. So to me, it should, like, your promoter shouldn't be your manager. Okay. Your promoter just Ray? promotes clubs and stuff. This is Ray. Exactly. Okay. Um, so he was also around for like much of her life. And then at the end, her bodyguard, um, what's his name? God, oh, he knew. was the one that found her. Yeah. And they were really, really close to um, oh. Andrew Morris. Okay. Andrew Morris was hired right at the end because because they needed like way better security because of how insane the paparazzi was getting. And yeah. he basically says that like the two of them were family because they only spent time with each other at a certain point. And she almost yeah. treated him like a bit of like a father. And yeah. um, he was also one of those people, like he wouldn't let her go to the pub. Um, okay, so she makes back to black and this like launches her into even more stardom. It's where she really found her place. It's where she really found her fame in the US. Um, it was produ- produced by Mark Ronson and Salam Remy, with Ronson playing demo tracks, You Know I'm No Good at Rehab, on his East Village radio show in New York. It was released on 30 October 26, very British way of putting the date out there, and it made it to number one in the UK charts. It stayed in that position for two weeks in January 2007 before dropping and then climbing back up again in February, becoming the best-selling album in the UK that year. It's also been a key influence in the widespread popularity of British soul through the late 2000s, paving the musical landscape for artists such as Adele, Duffy, and Estelle. Adele, Duffy, and Estelle? Adele, Duffy, and Estelle. Um, 
she won a bunch of freaking Grammys for specifically for that album. Oh. She also made a lot of live. Oh yeah, so Rehab was like the big single. Yeah. Um, so she made several live appearances to promote Back to Black in 2006. Um, and this was when she was still like pretty much all her appearances were still like coherent. Yeah. Even her most, even her messiest performances, there's really only one where she's actually just not performing. And that, there's, that's probably the one where she was like fully kidnapped. I don't know. I think that was actually her last performance ever. The one where she isn't performing at all. Basically, she really didn't want to go on tour. She kept saying no. And her management, including her father, pushed her into it. And so she basically just was like, I'm not going to perform. Like, she got on stage and she just wouldn't sing. She just wouldn't yeah, sing. Yeah, yeah. It was very... i um, some of those videos, yeah. They're, like, starting and she just won't do it. She has a back to the audience. She's just trying to hug everyone in the band to, like, Yeah, buy, she's, buy like, chatting time. with the band and they're like, <laughs> you know you're supposed to be singing, right? <laughs> yeah. It was very Judy Garland. <laughs> yeah, they have a sort of similar trajectories. So, by 12 March 2008, uh, Back to Black had sold almost 2 million copies and went on to become the 7th biggest selling album of the year. On the 27th of November, Amy announced that on Doctor's Advice, the rest of the dates that year were cancelled. Her album, though, stayed at the top of the charts during the first part of 2008. Also notable, it went back up to the top of the charts in 2011, right after she died. Um, okay, so at this point in her trajectory, according to an article in the Times, Universal Music was pressing Amy to produce new material during 2008, but as of September 2009, she had not recorded anything. She had, however, made several personal appearances, such as at a jazz festival in St. Lucia in May, during which it was noticed she was stumbling around the stage and had problems remembering some of the lyrics. She ended her set in the middle of a song. However, is that the trip she went on with her, where her dad brought all those paparazzi or filmmakers? St. Lucia was right at the end of her life, so she must have been to St. Lucia a few times. Okay. Um, but that trip, yeah, that trip where her, so that trip where her father brought, uh, basically he he didn't bring paparazzi. He brought filmmakers because he was making a show about being her dad. Yeah, that was I think that was right towards the end of her life. Um, okay. because pretty soon after that. Maybe not. I, I don't know. It's hard to remember the whole trajectory, but um, yeah, that was a brutal thing to yeah, see. That was, that was really sad. I'm curious, like, if you at the time, if, if you had been a, as big a fan as you were of hers when she was alive and you went to a concert of hers and she was like stumbling around and like not performing, what would your experience have been like? Honestly, I hate to say it, but probably at the time, I would have been like, oh, what the heck, I paid so much money for this. But now, obviously, it would be, it'd be different. I think I would have been the same way. Okay, so shit's getting pretty real for her. A new album was suggested by Island Records to be on the cards for 2010, with Amy herself stating it would be ready no later than January 2011, and it would be in similar style to her second album. However, Mark Bronson stated nothing had yet to be recorded. I can't even imagine. I mean, at that point, she was so far gone that I'm sure she didn't necessarily really feel the pressure of having to make a new album because she was just so single-minded about drug, her drug use. But if, like, 
you know, let's say there was a day where she couldn't get contact her dealer and she was in withdrawal and all of a sudden the reality of her situation came rushing in. Having, like, a homework assignment on top of all of that. Oh my god, that's horrifying. You know, like, I think that's a thing. She was never really good at, even with her first album, she could not stick to a schedule. Like, the only way she'd ever get any recording done is if Nick, Nick Shemansky and or somebody who at 19 management or later at island records called her and got mad at her and was like you have to do this now or or it's not happening and then she would get it all done in a few hours and then that was yeah yeah that was the thing like with with back to black she had a i think she had a lot of writer's block and she just or i don't know if it was writer's block or she just wasn't in the mood to write anything she really procrastinated it and then of course she writes it in like two seconds this huge worldwide hit you know she she actually didn't want to take antidepressants when she was younger because she was scared it would like dull her creativity and dull her highs and lows this idea that the sicker you are the more creative you are it's like yeah you won't be able to make squat if you're not well that's what's sad is like when she this is what's sad about her death for me personally is that like there's no singer on planet earth who brings me as much joy as amy winehouse so Uh When now that she's dead, there were some albums. Uh, there was one album released posthumously, or as we like to say, posthumously. <laughs> and um, it's amazing, it's incredible. There's one song I know you've heard it, it's uh, a cover of Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow, and it's like the most beautiful. So thing good. Ever. I also love the song Long Day, which I believe is on that album. Yeah, it's sad that she'll, she'll never make more music. There's certainly artists that she loved who I listen to and um i really like them uh-huh. and there's like new artists that i like but there's just like i don't know i'm like really obsessed with amy winehouse it's funny because i've had people be like oh yeah you play her a lot you really like her don't you it's like yes <laughs> i only just love her yeah i know well, it's it's so i i think that the artists we find in our teenage like late teen early 20s years are like they're so important to us um and they define our sense of music or comedy or whatever you're talking about um and losing them is devastating as you know when harris died (laughs) it just you know gutted me and even still i mean but it is gutting to lose the the artist that we found at a really important a really like vulnerable time in our lives it really is. And, but the thing that, like, has helped, the, the thing for me that's injured with Amy Winehouse is that actually, like, and she has said that all, she tried to make all of her performances different. So whatever she recorded, it was different than what she was performing on stage. And there's one song I discovered. So uh, there's a song called Cherry, and it's a song about um, her guitar and how, like, she bought this new guitar and she wanted to tell her best friend about it, but they weren't in touch at the time or something so her guitar is like her best friend and it's really funny and it's like it's a beautiful song and i know like the version of that song that's on the album frank but there's a live version of her performing in london that i'd never heard before and i've been obsessed with it i've been listening to it over and over because it's like she sings it in a different way but it's i'm so obsessed with this performance of it yeah. oh my god did i just ruin my cat eye no that's right um but yeah, it's it's so good. You know what's funny is that my guitar is my uncle. Oh. 
So a bit, a bit different. He's my mom's brother. <laughs> um, I just feel like, like... How did my mom get a brother? Um, do I really need to draw a diagram? Um, I also feel like... Guitar, like if, if a guitar were, were personified into a relationship, it's an uncle above all else. Don't you think? No, because I'm thinking of her song where, like... I almost see her guitar as, like, her, her best friend or her partner. Well, she's... Okay, fine. <laughs> I just um, don't see a guitar as an uncle. I don't know. I don't play guitar. Uncle vibes. Anyway, um, what was I going to say about something new? Two things. One is when she's recording with Tony Bennett and she does a new take and he says something about how she, she does. She, he says, you know, I'm like you. I never like to do the same thing twice. And she, she's honestly like so starstruck or high or both. And she's like, <laughs> she's kind of like, what? Yeah. And then she's like, <laughs> and then she's like, yeah, exactly, exactly. Like, n- n- we never want to do the same thing twice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And she keeps oh, saying, yeah, she's so cute." She's so cute. And then, and then she starts, and then she's like, "But I'm like you, not you're like me. I'm like you." Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's really cute. It's so it's cute. So cute. She she was like wildly uh, humble. Like yeah, she uh, most staff said this better. He's like when she was when she blew up in the states, she definitely didn't feel like. He said she almost felt embarrassed by her fame. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, there's, like, a, a Prince covered her song, um, Love is a Losing Game, and... Didn't know that. Yeah, and I, I don't know... I don't know if this was before or after her death, but there was... I, it, this might have been after her death, but um, there was, when she was still alive, like, an interview of her... And someone said that, like, Prince wanted to collaborate with her and blah, 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 which would have been, like, a huge, huge deal for her and anyone. And, like, it was Prince. And For me, it'd be a big deal. For me, it'd be, I mean, I don't, yeah, it'd be a big deal. Right. I'm not a huge Prince head, but don't tell anyone except for anyone who's listening to this. But, um, but she's so humble, but she's just kind of like, wow, yeah, I mean, yeah. That's pretty cool. But she, she almost seems, like, really embarrassed by it. Here's my question for you. What, why do you think you connected with her so much? Is it just her music, or is it her persona, or is it a bit of both? I think initially it was her music. I just really, really was drawn to it. I really liked it. I love to listen to it. I love to sing it. And then as soon as I got, became obsessed with all of her music, all her albums, I started researching her and her life, and I just thought she was so cool. Like, I thought she was... I guess I related to the more vulnerable parts of her, like the parts that could be childish or wanted attention, but she was able to put those things into such articulate words that obviously I could never in my wildest dreams do. And Mm -hmm. so I was... I think, like, I just found her in some ways really relatable, but also... I thought she was so cool and badass because I tend to be a bit of a softer person and I just thought it was, I was just so impressed by her ability to like, on the surface, obviously this wasn't really what was going on, but just sort of like not care what people thought, even though she did and like, you know, do crazy stuff, like throw food at Dido's billboard and just be really like cutting and, but also have this really like kind of sweet side. I just. And then, like, I think, uh, yeah, the Judaism thing definitely read. There's, there's just a familiarity there. I don't know if it's 
her lyrics, like, there's, she has one lyric that's like, um, I never hated myself or my age so much, and I just find that so relatable. She sings a song about Wait, elaborate on that. Um, like, I feel, it's hard to say, it's like, wait, how does the song go? It's like, um, oh, there's a part of the song where she's like, and the melodrama that my day deliver blows that surpassed your rejection. It just goes to show a simple attraction that reflects right back to me. So I'm not as into you as I appear to be. It's from that same song. So I think she's, A, I just love that lyric because it's so sassy and like well said. And it's like, I'm not as into you as I appear to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think she's just singing about like, I, I think that song, it's called You Sent Me Flying. I think it's about like rejection and yeah the lyric one of the lyrics in it is just like i've never hated myself or my age so much and i don't really know if it's about like having been rejected by a particular guy but haven't you just felt like having just been in a place where you're like oh i hate myself and i hate my age like i hate myself but also like Ugh, 20s suck. Like, if I was 30, I'd be mature. I don't know. I, I can't explain why it's so relatable. Well, I, I think I can't, and I think that's what I find interesting about your affection for her. Like, I can certainly relate to hating myself, but the age thing, no. But I think there's, like, something about her you, you always just felt really drawn to, and I think it is that, like, really intense vulnerability and that feeling of absolutely feeling like a child, but behaving like a teenager but like (laughs) you know but it's like when when you when you so desperately just want the people that are supposed to want you um to want you you don't you really don't care as much i think about strangers or everyone else you want your parents your family your partner to want you and love you and i think her genuine like f you attitude towards the press and other artists and people that she didn't care about was genuine because she she didn't care what you thought. She really just wanted a very small subset of people to love her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does that yeah, make sense? Which is also super relatable. And I do want to play, I don't know when we're ending, but I do want to play a message. So when, and it's a bit grainy, so I don't know how well this is going to work out, but we can try uh-huh. it. But when Nick Shemansky, her manager, right? From uh-huh. 19 Management. 19 Management. When he uh, was no longer in her life because he had distanced himself, um, she was sort of trying to to get back in touch with him. And this is, again, in the movie. It's subtitled because it's, it's grainy, but I do want to play it whenever we, whenever, like, that's sort of a, an exit thing for this podcast. I like that you're, you're, like, edit, you're producing for me. Yeah, I'm your freaking producer. Um, like, I have some strong feelings about how this should, this journey <laughs> should go. <laughs> Not only do I love Amy Winehouse, but I am dipping my toes into the production management field, <laughs> as they call it in in podcasting and management. It's a message she left for him. I know exactly answering... what you're talking about. Yeah, so he wasn't answering her calls, um, which sounds mean, but he was really just had tried his best with her, and it was in like he just couldn't do it anymore. Uh-huh. And she leaves him this message, and it sums her up so well, because she kind of starts to, like, get a bit, not defensive almost, but she's, like, kind of starts telling him, I don't know why you're not talking to me. 
But then she does this thing that she's really good at, which is like being charismatic and sucking people back in and sort of saying like, I will love you to the day, till the day I die. Mm-hmm. But it's, I want to play it. It's like, so it's beautiful. I've watched so many interviews on her. I don't even know if this is from the movie or not, but I think it was her bodyguard that said like, he asked her if, if, if you could take it all back and like not have the fame, not have the big record deals and hits just to be able to walk down these streets alone like with your friend or whatever Mm -hmm. not being bothered would you do it and she was like of course she said yes but it's like she i think brought it up i don't i don't even think he asked her i think they were watching a video of her and she was like damn i'm really good at singing or something and oh he was like you are and she said you know what i would trade it in i would trade it in to be able to walk down the street yeah yeah it's Uh, so sad so crazy that people ever are like well that's what you get when you're famous it's like why why it's why does that have to be a trade-off? Like, don't you enjoy these people's art? Like, it's this idea that the reward itself is fame. And, like, we gave this to you. It's like, don't... But wait, wait, the reason they're famous is because we enjoy their art. We want them to keep making that art. Yeah, and the reward you know? for a true artist is their artistry. Like, the reward for her was being able to sing. Like, as much as she, when she was using and when she was being pressured to perform concerts, she didn't want to do it. But, I mean, like she she would like felt most comfortable being on stage and there's a lyric in her song that's like um i'll take the wrong she says she's singing about how she chooses bad men and she was like um i'll take the wrong man as naturally as i sing like it it's funny it's a funny comparison and, uh-huh. and it did come so naturally to her like it was just part of her absolutely she had like pretty much no training at all i think it's a very american thing too like because everything in america is sort of like commodified and then once it's a commodity it is we have full access to it it is our right to consume everything that is offered to us in the free market same same thing with art and artists it's like they are the commodity they are the product we this is this is capitalism we consume them we we paid for it and so they're ours now like yeah and, yeah it's and like they're, they're not people their artistry they're their music whatever it is that they do isn't ours they are ours yeah they are ours they belong to us it's not you're not a person anymore i really think people's like humanity is stripped from them in the states in art and music yeah just talking about it now i'm like man it's just so sad what was i gonna say though oh it you know right up until the end of her life while she was still living it was all just like I can't believe that she's behaving this way. Like, she, she's such a mess. There was all these jokes about her. You know, she's all these horrible jokes about her. The second she dies, everyone's like, we should have been better. We should have yeah, treated yeah, her nicer. It's like, of course. Who's we? What are you talking about? Like, of course. It's so gross. And they just wait. It's like, I don't know. Obviously, this is probably not the case. But sometimes it feels like this weird trauma porn or, or sort of this, this weird sadness porn where it's like, People push someone to the point where they they are where they are absolutely just at their wits end. They're devastated. They're sick. They're dying. They're dead. And then we can finally be like, they really suffered. Wow, look at yeah, that. Like, we should have been better. It's just. But I will say something funny. It's not something funny that Amy Winehouse did, but it's something funny that I did. Um, I went to visit my friend a few years ago in London, uh-huh. and. I really wanted to visit. There's like a shrine to Amy Winehouse that's like on this tree that's right across the street from where she lived in Camden. Uh And so I went 
on my own because I think my friend was like working and also was probably like, yeah, that's a you thing that you can do, which is <laughs> totally fair. Um, I went to visit the the shrine and there was a guy there with a walkie-talkie and I was like, oh my god, like there's security here. This is even after her death. Like this is so crazy. And I was so anxious and I, I really wanted to like leave a note because people there's like a tree where you can leave notes and um and it was just like meaningful. It was like cool to see be right across the street from where she was living. Mm-hmm. Um but I was like so scared because this guy was there with a walkie-talkie and I just was convinced that he was like gonna jump on me and be like this is Amy Winehouse's tree. Like, don't mess with us. So, sorry, did you think he was there protecting the tree? Yeah. Okay. And and Amy Winehouse's legacy. Okay, 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 okay. Um, But he was just a guy with a walkie-talkie that had nothing to do with Amy Winehouse yeah. or the tree. Most guys with walkie-talkies are just guys, guys with, with walkie-talkies. walkie-talkies. Yeah. I, I feel like it It was, uh, maybe he was a construction worker and he had to walkie one of his co-workers it had like zero yeah you don't need like a license to have a walkie-talkie like it's not a (laughs) it's not a gun (laughs) um yeah yeah no it's true and so anyways i like yeah i went back to tell my friend i was like yeah this guy with a walkie kind of like stopped me she's like stopped you in what way i was like he um he had a walkie (laughs) i don't think that's what happened (laughs) oh that's such a story about anxiety i totally get it i totally get it so you know, we know the rest. Uh, she, her life gets harder and harder and worse and worse. And then she dies. And that's that. She died right before she was going to Nick Shemansky's wedding. Shemansky's wedding. She was really excited about it, too. Mm-hmm. Can I play the message, then, as, mm-hmm. like, a... Yeah, go ahead. to this episode. Go ahead. But so wait, just to... that, we're not ending the episode. I want to play a game with you, and then you can play it. Okay. Okay. We'll play two truths and a lie. Okay. Okay. I'm going to tell you two truths and one lie about Amy. Okay? Okay. 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 All right? Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Growing up, Amy had a hamster named Darius. Okay? Okay. Um, The second is that she accidentally killed her bird, Ava, because she forgot to feed it. And the last one is that in 2010, her father, Mitch released a jazz and swing album called Rush of Love, which sounds like it's about semen coming out of your uh, parts. I think the lie is that she killed her bird. I don't think she killed her bird. She did. Amy, you killed your bird. She wouldn't hopefully have done that if she were sober, but she's it makes you irresponsible. She just didn't realize how often you had to feed it, but then she did host... (laughs) She did, she did host a beautiful ceremony for her, and she sang, that is beautiful. She sang a song that uh, is beautiful. about birds. And the lie is about the hamster. Yes, but she did have a hamster. His name was Penfold. Penfold? That's amazing. It's like a character from some British show. Okay, um, so her, sounds British. Her dad did have a, an album release called Rush of Love. Ew. I know. Yeah, it's disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> if someone were to, if I were to be intimate with somebody and they were like, my rush of love <laughs> i would absolutely kill myself <laughs> i'd run the other way which way would you run like forward because then you're actually running more into them or would you run backwards backwards okay if i could do a perfect amy impression i would have tricked you into thinking she wasn't dead and just replaced her like bought you a new amy 
And then, then like, where would you go? I would have to kill myself off. So it's like pick your poison. <laughs> yeah, you can stick around. I, I, I would rather that. Okay. Um, thank you so much for doing this. I know it took a while for us to get it all set up, but we did it. We did it. Woo-woo! And I got to talk about my favorite Jewish girl. Thank you to my guest, my little sister, Amanda Lebo. She doesn't have anything to promote other than being my sister, so check her out doing that. This show is hosted by me, Laura Lebo. Executive producer is Michael Freeman. We're distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. Follow me on Instagram at Laura Lebo and Twitter at Tweebo. Follow the CJN on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Find their other podcasts at thecjn.ca please make sure to subscribe and review the podcast. It really helps us out and we're nice.